With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff. Are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. This is The Crossover, an NBA show hosted by Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. It's a whole new level for you and me, Chris, this relationship. Like and subscribe for the best weekly NBA content these two are capable of. What does that mean? Could be the best duo ever. I don't see how you can beat that. Here they are, Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. All right, Crossover NBA podcast, Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. What up, Beck? What up, Mannix? How are you, my friend? lot going on these days, Howard. But before we get into anything else, the crossover is going two times a week beginning this week. And the second episode will be helmed by you. What do you have coming up? Tell, Give us details on episode two of the uh, crossover podcast. We're expanding, baby. Very exciting. So second episode, uh, as you alluded to, helmed by me, uh, this is going to be very guest oriented and it'll be some of the typical NBA guests, coaches, players, others around the league, but uh, broader than that, uh, there will be actors, musicians, comedians, anybody that I can find out there with some sort of NBA tie, even if they're just really passionate NBA fans. We're going to get them on the crossover, talk NBA. It'll be a lot of fun. Just, you know, mix it up a little bit. So the first episode, the first uh, version of that crossover pod um, will be dropping on Friday, in fact. And my guests will be none other than the Scoop There It Is Guys tag team. Got the tag team on the pod. Um, And I know people are already saying, but all right, Howard, like where's the NBA tie-in? It's obvious, folks. One, we all saw that commercial 8 billion times in the last few months during NBA games and is the only commercial out of all the commercials we see during NBA games in heavy rotation. That's actually fun. I love that commercial. Um, and a lot of other people do too. So uh, that's what kind of a, got me interested in bringing them on. Um, they are NBA fans. The sprinkles toss is in fact a LeBron James uh, a, a tribute of sorts. It was a direct tie. Um, they've played, in fact, a bunch of NBA halftimes. Uh, plus, they're just great. They're delightful. It was a really fun conversation. So that is coming on the next episode of The Crossover, dropping Friday. Keep an eye out for that, folks. And you don't have to subscribe to anything new. It will be on this yes. podcast feed. It will show up on Fridays as opposed to this show with Howard and I, which pops up every uh, Tuesday. So great. Good stuff. Crossover. We're doing big things. We're expanding the crossover brand across the podcast uh, universe. All right, Howard, I want to get into the big story of the week. That is the Minnesota Timberwolves being sold to a group that includes Alex Rodriguez, a real stunner that popped up over the weekend. Now, in lieu of you and I discussing the ramifications of this deal, I thought we'd bring in somebody 
little bit smarter than us, somebody with a little more knowledge on this particular issue. That's why I want to welcome in John Krasinski, the great writer over at The Athletic. He has been on top of this story from day one. He has been covering the Timberwolves' potential sale since Glenn Taylor announced he was going to be selling the team. He's all over this particular story. John, welcome to the show. What's up, fellas? Good to, good to be here. Thanks for having me. No, we appreciate it. Um, let me start here, John. Like, for people that have been following the Timberwolves sale, the name Alex Rodriguez kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, take us through kind of where this offer came from and what you know about A-Rod getting involved. Yeah, I'll tell you, Chris, uh, I've been following this Timberwolves sale for years. Uh, Glenn Taylor's been looking for uh, a successor for a long, long time. And even for me, it came out of nowhere. So really, um, you know, he, he has had several occasions over the last five, six years where he sort of flirted with other possible groups to come in and kind of take things over eventually from him, could never get a deal done or agree, or an agreement in place. And then this just this last week, all of a sudden, sort of out of nowhere, come Alex Rodriguez and Mark Laurie. They get interested. They tried to buy the Mets last year. It didn't quite work out for them. And they got connected to Glenn Taylor as his search for, uh, for a successor was dragging on. They got with him and, and met with him last week and it with one meeting on, on Monday and then uh, another meeting on Saturday, the ball just really got rolling very quickly. Um, if you guys know Glenn Taylor at all, he is a billionaire, but he really wants more than anything to have personal connections with the people he does business with. And Glenn, uh, Alex Rodriguez and Mark Galori really kind of did a good job of of showing that this was more than just a business transaction to them. And I think that he really appreciated that. They had a very intimate gatherings this last week to hash things out. There's still some eyes to be dotted, some T's to be crossed. They're in this negotiating period right now. But all of the big things have been agreed upon. The price, keeping the thing in Minnesota, like all, all these other things that have to happen. And so now they're progressing toward really finalizing this thing and everyone's operating under the assumption that it's going to happen. So John, let's assume that it actually does happen. And as I understand it from reading your stuff, it's going to be a couple of years before A-Rod and his partner are actually in control. Glenn Taylor will kind of slowly hand this off over a couple of years. So we may not see the impact immediately, whatever that impact might be. So I'm going to, but I'm going to ask you the impossible question because of course this is just now happening. And to my knowledge, we, no one's even really been able to speak with A-Rod uh, and, and his partner about what they might do. Do we have any sense of what a shift in ownership might mean after obviously a very long run um, by Glenn Taylor, because this, this franchise has had more bad years than good. If not for the existence of Kevin Garnett, it's pretty, pretty desolate. Um, and so if there's going to be a new direction charted, do we have any sense of what that might be or what new ownership and new energy might do for this franchise? Yeah, I think like that's, that's what it is. Um, it, it's kind of new energy is what has to happen here, Howard. Um, Glenn Taylor has been the owner of this team since 1994. And what you can say about the Timberwolves is they, they really much have been run like a mom and pop shop. Uh, Glenn Taylor is a, a small town guy. Uh, he kind of likes to have a family atmosphere uh, it, it's definitely different from many NBA organizations out there. And so I think the idea is that A-Rod and Lori come in as more kind of modern business savvy, marketing you know, savvy kinds of people with you know, A-Rod's background in sports, Mark Lori's background in, in, in e-commerce and, and all of those things. And they really want to try and bring things kind of, you know, light years ahead, if I can use the Warriors term, and, and try and catch up a little bit because they have been light years behind in, in many respects. And so um, you, you, you hit it on the head. They're going to come in and be uh, limited partners for the first two years, but I still think they're going to have a huge influence early on in this process in trying to modernize and trying to get things going. Now, what we don't know are the changes that they have planned, are they going to be good? Are they going to be bad? How are they going to be as owners? You just don't know how, how what's going to happen until they step into that seat. But what you can say is 
it's going to be a markedly different Timberwolves feel with these guys there to kind of push the ball forward. You know, they, they have a reputation as being a little bit of penny pinchers. They've had a reputation of just kind of, you know, being a little behind the times. And I think these guys are supposed to come in and really try to catch them up in that regard. Let me ask you this, because you said the team will be staying in Minnesota. And I read some comments from Glenn Taylor in the last couple of days to that effect as well. Um, You know, Glenn's insisted, as you well know, that whoever buys the team keeps the team in Minnesota. We all know A-Rod's connection to Seattle. We know Seattle wants an NBA team. I mean, to your understanding, John, how enforceable is any of that? Like, I mean, how, like, I mean, I mean, hypothetically, like if Minnesota was invaded by Canada, you could move the team out. Like, I'm just like, there's some, there's some things that had come up that, you know, make it uh, unrealistic to keep a team in a particular city. I mean, how enforceable is any language that gets included in a contract about keeping that team in Minnesota? Well, I, yeah, I think that, you know, Seattle fans will tell you, don't believe what you hear, right? I mean, uh, you know, I, I think that um, you know, Glenn Taylor can say all he wants about the team is going to stay here. When we hear from Alex Rodriguez and Mark Laurie, they can say all they want. Yeah, we're going to keep it here. Uh, there could be language in any contract that says keep the team here. But if you talk to legal experts about that, there's ways around all of this stuff. Things can change. You can backtrack. You can um, you can just straight up just decide to change your mind. Um, maybe they can't get anything done with the arena and, and, and things like that happen. So I would say for fans who are skeptical about the, the Wolves' long-term future here, I understand that. I, I think that that is, um, you know, it's not Kevin Garnett buying the team. There, there is not a... There's no local ties for Alex Rodriguez and for Mark Laurie. The one thing, though, that I would say that I think is more of a a positive for for Wolves fans who are nervous than any public statements or any contract language that's going to happen, if you talk to people around the league, there is definitely much more of an appetite to expand to Seattle, to Las Vegas, things like that, because owners have lost a ton of money over the last year. How do you recoup that? with a $2.5 billion expansion fee in a city rather than maybe charging the Wolves $600, $700 million to move. Um, and, and so, you know, the other thing is, is that I think the league looks at the Twin Cities. It's the 13th largest market in the league. It's not Memphis. It's not Oklahoma City. It's not a really small market. I think that they see an opportunity here to do well if you can put a winning product on the court. Like that's the, the whole problem here has not been the market. It's not been the, the lack of basketball fans here. There's a huge amount of basketball fans in the Minneapolis area, but it's just the team has been so bad for so long that the interest has waned. And so the idea is, is that if A-Rod and, and Lori come in and they make some changes and they get aggressive spending money and, and infusing this team with capital that the team will get better and better and be more competitive and be in the playoff hunt. And then the fans will come back and then the momentum will build and there will be no real reason to move. And once the team expands to Seattle and, and Vegas, are you going to move the Timberwolves to Pittsburgh or to Louisville? Like, I, I think that's less likely than having that, that Seattle carrot out there to dangle. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, John, because you know, Expansion is one of those things that comes up all the time. The league has constantly kind of batted it away. Like, yeah, that's just not something we're going to discuss. And then Adam Silver kind of left the door open um, within the last few months. Uh, And I think you noted that in your latest story, which was interesting. Because even rhetorically, the fact that he allowed for the possibility of it in the near future-ish was interesting. Chris and I both believe expansion is a terrible idea for the product. Not that the league will care what we think. Um, I think it's going to dilute the talent pool even further. I think it's a terrible idea. I think if Seattle's going to get a team, it should be by relocation, even though I'm not advocating for anybody to lose their team. But let me just ask this question. Um, Everything that you laid out is kind of this leap of faith. Well, okay, new ownership, new energy, better product. The fans will return. Everything's fine. There'll be no reason to go. But as of right now, and you're right to point out too, of course, that Seattle's not that much bigger of a market. It's like, you know, two slots ahead of them on the Nielsen rankings. Um, But we know there's a passionate fan base in Seattle that badly wants basketball back, that supported the Sonics greatly. And we know that the Timberwolves, for 
most of the last 15 years, it's as far back as I went, all but one of those 15 years, they were in the bottom third in attendance and not just by number, but by percentage of building, percentage of occupancy. So it, it, it seems to me there's at least a, a, a legit concern and maybe even a legit premise to say, maybe we need to re-examine the market for the Timberwolves here. How do we know that just putting a better product out there is going to bring them all back? Um, is, is, you know, what's, what's wrong with, with my uh, line of reasoning there? And is, is there an opening possibly? And I'm not, again, I'm not advocating it, just saying we got to all be realists here. We've seen this stuff happen before. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that one thing that I was careful to write in the story as well is like, there, there's no guarantee that this is going to happen, like that everything is going to work out well for the Timberwolves. Chances are it's the Timberwolves, things don't work out well for them, right? Like this is just the way that things have gone. And, um, you know, I, I think that there, in, until Mark Laurie and A-Rod preside over the building of a new arena in Minneapolis or a mate, like a, $500 million renovation of the target center or whatever like that, that that's a huge, strong statement to, um, to kind of really cement this team in this market. Yeah. That's going to hang out there. And, and I think it's not guaranteed a guarantee. You can't guarantee anything is what I guess what I would say in, in terms of my caveat that the wolves will definitely not move in terms of your argument. You're right. Um, the, the building has been empty. Now here's, what I've always said, like, it's one thing if your team has been successful for a while and then they go through a couple of down years in rebuilding and you just see everyone jump off of the bandwagon and it's and not come back. You know, that's, that's where you could say, okay, you know, fair weather fans, not much of a market. And even when, when they're winning, the building is not packed. This market has been dormant for literally 15 straight years. Like that's a long time. You had the one year with Tom Thibodeau and Jimmy Butler where they made the playoffs and then it blew up in a spectacular fashion to like really erode any confidence in the franchise at all locally. So these fans have been kicked in the teeth every single year forever and ever. Not just, This isn't just a little swoon. This isn't just a down cycle. This is an entire generation of basketball fans who don't know what relevant basketball is. And so one the in in the anecdotal evidence i can provide you know um last year when the when the wolves traded for d'angelo russell they were at the bottom of the league in attendance leading right up to that trade they had some terrible losses right before that and immediately after four straight sellouts um that so there's just like i use that as just a small sample of an appetite for the game here um i think that the the fans are just need and are desperate for a reason to come out and believe in a franchise that has given them no reason to believe. Now, here's where the problem will come in. Let's say that Arod and Mark Laurie get here and they look around and they say, look, Target Center, second oldest building in the league. It's really a dump. Um, we're going to need a new facility and we're going to need the public to pay for it. That's going to be where you could hit a real problem. And because the Timberwolves do not have any credibility locally, there's already been a ton of public money spent on arenas for other teams around this city. And that's where you could get some sort of a standoff. And so that's what you'll have to watch closely. Um, but as far as I, I've always been kind of a defender of the basketball fan in the Twin Cities, just because they have endured much more than anyone else. Cause we're not even talking losing seasons, guys. We're talking 60 loss seasons. We're talking Steph. We're talking Johnny Flynn over Steph Curry. We're talking Jimmy Butler blowing the team up right before training camp. We're talking every imaginable dysfunction. We're talking about losing coaches to cancer. We're like everything you can think of these fans have had to endure. And at every step of the way, they've been told, do not pay attention to the Timberwolves. We're not worth it. Alex Rodriguez and Mark Laurie coming in are trying to reimagine what this brand is and see if like they will start paying attention. We'll see if that happens or not. Who could forget the David Kahn era in Minnesota? <laughs> I've tried. Ooh. I've tried, Chris. <laughs> gave, it, gave it your best <laughs> shot. Uh, before we let you go, John, one question. Uh, Glenn Taylor uh, has owned this team since 1994. He oversaw the Kevin Garnett era in Minnesota, which had a level of success. He then proceeded to alienate Kevin Garnett, which is 
unforgettable. He may be unforgivable in the Minnesota area. What is Glenn Taylor's legacy going to be once he sells this team? Well, I mean, yeah, on the plus side, he is the one that saved this team from moving to New Orleans in 1994. They were gone. It was going to happen. He swooped in. David Stern blocked the move. But then but then Glenn Taylor came in out of nowhere, just like A-Rod and, and Mark Laurie, and bought the team and kept it here. So at the very base level, the reason the Timberwolves are here is because of Glenn Taylor. The reason the Timberwolves are bad is a lot because of Glenn Taylor as well. And so I think that a lot of fans have been clamoring for years for Glenn to move on and to hand the team over to uh, some new ownership that will have fresh perspective, that will get aggressive with spending and try and get the team back competitive. I think in some ways his complete legacy will really be tied to what happens here over the next five or six years. If A-Rod and Lori come in and they really stabilize the franchise and they energize it and they make the right moves and they return it to respectability and it remains in town for a long, long time, that really improves Glenn Taylor's legacy. If they turn into carpetbaggers, if they try and you know steal them out from under the, this community and, and take them to Seattle or to wherever else, um, then you know, I think his name is going to be mud in, in the eyes of basketball fans. So it's a complicated legacy, but uh, I think it's still left to be written in some ways. Well, John, we appreciate it. Um, look forward to you developing a cozy relationship with A-Rod for <laughs> years to come. Uh, we have a lot in common. And, so and J-Lo, of course. Yes, of course. Um, oh, they're, yep. they're on the outs, though, right? Am I reading my TMZ correctly? Like J-Lo and... Uh, Say it isn't so. I, I, I I'm holding out for love, guys. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna think it's gonna conquer all and, and everything's I'm just, gonna be okay. I'm just gonna assume all those John Krasinski stories in the athletic have like source close to A Rod is actually A Rod. He's developing this like, you know, text me all the time, buddy kind of relationship. Little be, by little. Little by little, guys. John, we appreciate it. Great stuff, man. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Gallus. Thanks, John. All right, Howard, let's move on and talk a little bit about the MVP discussion because I think this is going to be just a significant talking point right up until the final day of the NBA uh, season. Right now, you've got at least a half a dozen candidates for MVP that can make pretty compelling cases uh, for it, whether it's James Harden or LeBron James or Nikola Jokic or Joel Embiid. Giannis put himself in the mix recently. Damian Lillard is having a terrific year. Donovan Mitchell has been excellent uh, for the Utah Jazz. Um, where do you stand right now on the MVP race, Howard? Because for me, like, I think I have a pretty good idea of what way I'm leaning at the moment, but, you know, a lot can change in the final month of the season. So our, our friend Tim Bontemps over at ESPN hit me up over the weekend, probably hit you up too, doing his, oh, informal, yeah. his informal poll, which I'm sure they'll be publishing soon. And I was like, Oh, God, are you really going to make me think about this? It's a freaking mess, Chris. Like, I don't, I've been covering this league for 24 years. I've been a voter for most of it. Uh, the nine years I was at the Times, the Times doesn't allow you to vote. So every year I've I've had to tackle this in, in one way or another and, and, and think about it a lot. I don't recall it ever being this messy. There have been close races, right? Like Westbrook versus Harden or Steph Curry versus Harden, you know, Giannis, LeBron, whatever. Like there have been, close years, but not one that was just an utter freaking mess. And, and, and and I, and I mean it that way, like it is just messy. Um, a month and a half ago, Embiid and LeBron were the clear front runners, right? And people would argue for Jokic based on his stats, but well, the Nuggets, they were like seventh in the West at the time. So to me, it was like, no, 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 he's a non-starter until he gets in the top four. But now like games missed is going to be maybe the biggest factor in the entire race. Um, let me go down it real quick with some of these guys. LeBron has missed 12 games and counting. Embiid's back, but he missed 18 games in a 72-game season. That's a big chunk. Harden, I alluded to this in the morning shoot-around on my, on, on my column on Monday. Harden's missed six games and counting as a net, but he also missed their first 13 games because he wasn't a net yet. I think that matters a lot. We can discuss it, but I think, forget whether you liked to, you know, or dis dislike the way he got out of Houston the mere fact that he missed 13 games, basically a full month of games of the net season, means that he can't be their MVP. He's not part of their their, their full season. It's about the full season. Um, Jokic zero games missed, and the Nuggets are now up in the in the in the top tier. So 
Like, he is at the top of my theoretical ballot for the moment. Giannis has missed eight games and counting with that knee now. Eight games total. It's, it's, it's uh, four and counting with the knee, I think. Lillard's only missed two games, but the Blazers aren't a top four team. Kawhi has missed 10 games. So all of the top candidates, aside from basically Jokic, Giannis teetering, Lillard, so many guys have missed so many games that it's almost going to be process of elimination, Chris. And right now, that's where I'm at. To me, it's I don't want to say it's Jokic by default because that's disrespectful. Jokic has the stats. The Nuggets are now in the top four in the West as we speak. He's legitimately the leader, but he's the leader at least in part because guys are just dropping left and right, and it's yeah, made wrote, it easier. Yeah, I wrote a little bit about this on the morning shoot around on Tuesday where – you know, you're right. There have been some years where it's been a competitive race between two guys. But oftentimes, like, the Twitter outrage is reserved for, like, who got fourth and fifth. Like, I mean, how did you put this guy on your ballot and not include that guy? Like, how could you do it? Like, more often than not, there isn't a ton of outrage over who's the MVP. Maybe Westbrook certainly had some outrage attached to him the year that he won it because the Thunder weren't very good and some people considered him more of like a ball hog or a stat stuffer than he was a winning player. But more often than not, like the guy that wins MVP, you can understand. Like it's, it's maybe not a landslide, but it's a pretty convincing win. This year, not so much. And I'm with you that durability might become the overwhelming factor. That's why when I'm looking at my MVP ballot right now, I've got to keep Jokic at the top. I mean, Jokic has played, uh, I think, every one of the Nuggets games this year. He has been brilliant all season long. Like, when you factor that against the number of games that other top-tier players have missed, it has to count for something, right? And I'd also like to use this space, Howard, to say we've got to start at least considering Donovan Mitchell for this award. Like, we just do. Like, he's also been an Iron Man for the Jazz, played 50-plus games for Utah. He's averaging career highs in scoring, right around 26 points per game. He is averaging career highs and assists in three-point percentage. I think he's at five per game and in the high 30s from three-point range. And he's on the best team in the NBA. Like, in other years, Howard, that's mattered, right? Like, we've looked at the player yes. who is on the best All team. Right. So, just, just I'm just saying, like, there, there, it needs to be in that conversation at this point. All right, but wasn't it just a week ago you were saying it was Rudy Gobert who had to be in this conversation? I on did, behalf yes. Of the I've, jazz? I've, I've vacillated between <laughs> jazz players. <laughs> well, and that, but that speaks to, in your defense, that speaks to the, the how difficult it is sometimes. Um, I remember there were years where like the Sacramento Kings back during that Lakers-Kings rivalry and the Kings would be awesome and they had a better regular season record than the Lakers even. And I would say, well, what about Chris Webber? He's the key to the 61-win team. But they were this ensemble cast, right? Webber had the most stats of that group and he was, I think, the best player of the Kings. But it was a little Vlade and a little Mike Bibby and a little Peja. And, a little... and so those teams are harder when it comes to the MVP discussion. So are the Suns, you know, are the Suns great because of Chris Paul's addition or because Devin Booker is still a stud as he was even before Chris Paul got there and Chris Paul just pushed them over the top. Are the Jazz a dominant team because of Rudy Gobert's defensive anchoring or Donovan Mitchell's offensive engineering? Those are hard to parse out. And it's not to say throw up your hands and just say, well, then I'll just leave them both off. It's just more that it really is a combination. So I have a hard time, you know, put it this way. We should always focus in on the top teams. Because in the history of the MVP, aside from Westbrook and Moses Malone way back in the day, all the MVPs for the last 40 years have been top three in the conference. Like, it's it's almost a hard and fast rule. It's not an actual rule, and not everybody believes it should even be a persuasive precedent. I do, but let's take it at that. So let's even look at top four. Just because you are one of the best players on a top four team doesn't mean you're an MVP candidate because the, the individual part still comes into play. Are Donovan Mitchell's stats as off the charts as Kawhi Leonard's or Giannis's or Jokic's? Like that's that's the problem. And because eventually this does still come down to like stats, whether you want to say it's advanced stats, traditional stats. Donovan Mitchell's not at the level of individual dominance as some of the other guys. And so I, I don't have him in this discussion necessarily maybe down ballot, but again, there's only five slots on the ballot. Like at what point do you consider Jimmy Butler and the way he revived the heat and he's putting up incredible stats? Um, at what point do you, you know, do people want to talk about Steph Curry? I mean, I, I, I don't, not at the top of the ballot, but he's been amazing. Luke has been amazing. But again, if you're below that, that Mendoza line, essentially, 
of the top four in your conference, it's just harder to, to make a strong case, especially in a year where there's a bunch of great candidates. No, and I tend to agree um, when it comes to can Mitchell win the award. I think Mitchell's case will be strongest and maybe it will stir the most debate on the all-NBA ballot, right? Sure. Because yeah. there are a lot of great guards in this league. But if you're, if you're say, and we both are, are voters for both categories, Howard, if you are a voter and you have Donovan Mitchell as the second highest ranked guard on your MVP ballot, don't you automatically have to put him first team all NBA? Like, doesn't it stand to reason that if a guy is fifth or sixth on your MVP ballot, the only guy ahead of him at the guard position is like Damian Lillard, that both those guys would have to be all NBA first team? Yeah, I mean, it, it it gets crowded in a hurry. And yes, you're right. Um, we we do have to reconcile those things, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, the you know, again, to be clear, the MVP ballot only goes five deep, right? So we have, theoretically, as we are both doing this exercise, maybe we have Donovan Mitchell as just outside the top five and he's sixth. But yeah, now he's a play for all NBA too. So you've got to kind of actually do both those exercises simultaneously. I just want to point out one quick thing, which again, I, I alluded to in my column in the morning shoot around on Monday, just in case people are curious about this whole games played thing. Well, should it matter if a guy's been dominant for the games that he did play and all this? And we, you know, we had the whole debate over Joel Embiid uh, with, or um, with rookie of the year years ago. Um, I looked this up. The lowest percentage of games played by someone who won MVP was Bill Walton in 1977-78. He played in 58 out of 82. That's 71%. So the equivalent this season, which is a 72-game season, would be 51 games. That would be your your floor, your minimum, if we're going to use that as as the uh, the the measure. Um, but every other MVP, all of them, have played at least 78% of their team's games. So that's 64 games in a normal season or 56 this season. So you could miss... 16 games and still be at the kind of the low point for most MVPs. Um, Embiid's already missed 18. LeBron's missed 12. And if he misses six more, or excuse me, if he misses four more, he's going to go past that, that, that mark, that 78% games played mark. So I, again, I, like, I think precedent matters, Chris. It, 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 again, it's not the only thing. It's not everything. And if LeBron comes back and the Lakers like, win like 20 of their last 22 and he's putting up massive numbers, it's going to be hard to, to, you know, hold the games missed against him. But I still think that that's important. Like availability matters. You're most valuable. You know, what's the most valuable thing you can do. Be dominant every night and play every game that you can possibly play. And like, if you're injured, that's just the breaks. Um, so it, it's, it's going to factor in regardless. I think those historical markers are kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, I think LeBron will be the most interesting to watch, though, if the reporting is correct. He could be a couple of weeks at least away from playing, which would, I think, officially pull him from the discussion. I mean, I I, I think if you miss as many games as he would miss yeah. under those circumstances, it would be tough for him to climb back in it. Attention all wrestling aficionados. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. This is Freddie Prince Jr., and I am beyond thrilled to announce that our wrestling extravaganza is back, and joining me once again is the one and only Jeff Dye. Get ready as we highlight the most jaw-dropping matches, dissect the fiercest feuds, and uncover the latest twists and turns in the world of pro wrestling. We're dusting off our legendary side quests and unleashing a barrage of brand new segments that will keep you guys on the edge of your seat like our talks on unsanctioned Thursdays. Freddie, you know we gotta give the people what they want. This season, we have an all-star lineup of special guests who are gonna be gracing our podcast, bringing with them their own unique insights, experiences, and all of that in the world of pro wrestling and beyond. Whether you're a seasoned wrestling veteran or a fresh-faced newcomer, we promise an experience like no other. So buckle up, wrestling fans. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals, each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating Cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's keep it on Utah a little bit here, Howard, because the Jazz have basically been wire-to-wire leaders. Not wire-to-wire leaders, I guess, but the last couple of last month or so, uh, they have been the top team, not just in the Western Conference, but in the entire NBA. They're playing excellent. They've got a terrific starting five. Jordan Clarkson is the front runner for sixth man. But there's still a lot of skeptics about the Utah Jazz. You had Doc Rivers recently, kind of when he was asked about the top teams in the West, he named the Lakers and Clippers at the top. You know, there seems to be this weird kind of sense or feeling about the Jazz that while they're good, they're not playoff good. Maybe it's because they haven't proven it. Maybe it's because they only have one guy that looks at like a de facto closer, and that's Donovan Mitchell, and he hasn't done it at the highest level yet. But what are your thoughts on the Jazz and you know how big a threat they are come playoff time in the Western Conference? Yeah, I do think that a lot of us were spending the first, and, and by us, I mean not just us in the media, but I think fans, I think people around the NBA were watching those first couple months going, wow, all right, that's nice, Utah Jazz. Let's, let's, let's see if you can sustain it kind of waiting for that inevitable fall, and which has never happened and I don't think is going to happen. So they're legitimate. But I mean, the the like we have to kind of draw a line between what's legitimate as a great regular season team versus legitimate threat to win it all. And it's not to say that they're not checking both boxes. It's just to say we don't know yet, right? Like we haven't even seen them in a conference finals. We haven't seen them try to knock out LeBron and Anthony Davis yet. Uh, they are still the defending champs. And when healthy, I think everybody agrees the Lakers are still the favorites. So I don't think there's anything wrong or certainly not disrespectful about saying you got to kind of prove it to me, especially when you're built differently. And they are. Like Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert are all-stars, but they're not LeBron and Anthony Davis level all-stars. They're not Giannis level. They're not Paul George and Kawhi Leonard level. And again, that's not a knock. It's just to say that it's those other kinds of players, the top five, top 10 types, who generally win championships in the NBA. That's the history of this league. And so it's, I think it's fine to have a healthy um, skepticism is almost too strong of a word. It, it, it's just a, like, like, show me. I got I to gotta see it first. Um, their defense is elite and has been for years. Their offense is now incredible, especially with all that three-point shooting. But my concern is that Donovan Mitchell is their sole uh, elite-level creator. And... In the playoffs, in a best-of-seven series, you're going to aim everything at cutting off the head of the snake, 
And I don't know how well the rest of that offense functions if you cut him off, if you fluster him, if you make it hard for him to score or play make. All those open shots that Joe Ingles and Bogdanovich and the rest of these guys are getting, are they still there? Do they have another way? I don't know. And other elite teams have other elite offensive players that I think um, make them a better bet. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair summary with questions about the Jazz. They need to have everybody that's playing at a high level during the regular season play at that same high level in the playoffs. That means Mike Conley has to play like an all-star and make shots. Joe Ingles has to do what he's been doing all season long. Uh, I think Derek Favors, his return has really helped the Jazz. Bogdanovic, as a third or fourth scoring option, has certainly helped the Jazz. Uh, But you need all those guys to be doing the exact same thing. One thing I think works in their favor, though, they've got great continuity there. I mean, several of these guys, many of these guys, have been together for four or five years. I mean, Favors really was only gone one year, and he was there for like the previous six before that. So they've got a group that's pretty comfortable playing with each other. And I think that's going to matter come playoff time. So I, I think that's that's a positive for them, Howard. It's it's potentially an advantage. Um, although, look, you know, like the Suns added a major piece in Chris Paul, but that group, while young, has been together. The Clippers, True. it's year two with Paul George and, and Kawhi, and they've changed that almost everything around them, it feels like. Um, so the Clippers are still kind of like, you know, I, I think it's fair to say they're still unproven. Um, the Nuggets core... Aside from the, the late edition of Aaron Gordon, Nuggets have been together for a while. They're key pieces. Portland's been together for a while. So, I mean, I, I think some of the other teams that are in this discussion will make the same case. But you're right. The Jazz, the continuity that they've had, I, I think, uh, will definitely benefit them. Um, I'm just really, really curious to see what happens you know, in the second and third round. Well, who knows? It may happen to the first round of the playoffs for all we know. They may get the Lakers in, in round mm-hmm. one, but but certainly by the second round when they have to face some of these other elite teams, I'll be curious to see how they hold up. That would be unfortunate for Utah to have to face the Lakers in the first round. I don't think anyone's rooting harder for Lakers' success in the absence of AD and LeBron than the Utah Jazz. All right, we're going to introduce something new to the podcast this week, Howard. That's answering questions from people on social media. Uh, I want to begin... On Twitter, with at BenchWarmerPost, who asks, what's the consensus on R.J. Barrett right now? Barrett, of course, the Knicks forward, former top three pick in the draft, who's having a pretty solid offensive season. What do you think? What's the consensus on Barrett? I mean, I don't know if there's a consensus. I haven't taken any polls recently. Um, But clearly, the guy's been on fire. I don't have the stats in front of me. Maybe you do. But um, he had a really rough start to the season shooting-wise, and ever since then has basically shot, I don't know, close to 50% or something. Like He's in, he's in like the 45% range on threes, um, and I think closer to 50% over his last, whatever, couple of weeks. He's been their closer lately. He's been great in the clutch. And, you know, look, uh, like he had a pretty rough rookie season. And when that happens, when you're a high lottery pick, the third overall pick, that's going to come with a lot of skepticism behind it. Like, well, is this is this guy really um, up to, the, to, to that task? Is he really, you know, you hope for at minimum an all-star type player if you're picking in the top three, top five. And we've seen plenty of times it doesn't work out. Um, he was considered to be you know, a cut below the top two guys behind, uh, you know, Zion and Ja. And so there was reasonable skepticism after a rough rookie year, even though, and I'll be the first to say this, we should never judge guys too harshly after a rookie year. It's an adjustment in the NBA. And he also didn't exactly have the greatest cast around him. Uh, Ironically, still still has most of the same guys around him. They're just a lot better team and a lot better organized team under Tom Thibodeau. But credit to to Barrett for simply, uh, you know, working on his game um, and especially his jump shot and especially his three-point shot, he's really looking like a, a player on the rise. I don't, again, just as I don't want to get carried away with his rookie year and say, that's it, this guy's never going to turn out to be a useful player, I don't want to go too far the other way and say, based on a few months of, of great production, that, oh, you know, R.J. Barrett's going to be a perennial all-star. All I'll say is, what we're seeing is really promising. The, kid, the the Knicks should be really happy about it. And the combination of, of him and Randall gives them a, a really nice offensive foundation to keep adding to. And they got cap room this summer too. 
Yeah, they do. Um, I, I think they're in a good position now. And, and R.J. Barrett, I look at two things. One, shooting right around 38 39% from three. That's a good number for a guy that was not considered a three-point shooter and has not been considered a three-point shooter uh, since he came into the NBA. And one thing, too, you have to remember about Barrett, like the Knicks may have been unlucky to not get one of those top two picks, which would have been franchise-changing players in Zion and Ja Morant. It's not like they missed with R.J. Barrett. Like, look down that draft board. Like, would you rather have DeAndre Hunter or R.J. Barrett? Would you rather have uh, Rui Hashimura? No. Would you rather have Kobe White? No. Like, it's not like there are players that the Knicks <laughs> missed on when yeah. they drafted no. R.J. Barrett. So, I, I'm, no, I think he's trending just... in the right direction. Yeah, no, it's just the idea that, and this happens, right? It is no fault of, of the players. Like when you're in a draft with, you know, a guy who's a transcendent player like Zion and then also just an incredibly, you know, electric player in, in John Morant, you're always going to get compared to the guys you got uh, taken in the same um, year with and also if you were close to the same range of, of the draft. Um, so while we were talking, I pulled up real quick because uh, our buddy Tommy Beer, who uh, has all the greatest Nick stats, especially on, on his feed, um, there are 87 players averaging more than 15 points a game over the past three months. Only one of those 87 players is averaging 15 plus, who is averaging 15 plus points per game, is shooting above 45% from three over that stretch, and that's R.J. Barrett. He also notes over their last five games, Barrett is averaging 20.8 points while shooting 61% from the field, 70% from three-point range, uh, and 80% from the free throw line, which was another problem. His, his, his rookie year, he was shooting poorly there. Um, that's just the last five games. Smaller sample, but still not not insignificant. Um, Barrett's looking really nice. And, uh, I, you know, again, the, the the Knicks should be really happy with what they're seeing, the way that his, he's progressing. He's a good player. Is he a franchise player like Zion or Ja? Maybe not, but it's not what, if you look at that third pick and what you could have had, you couldn't get much better than R.J. Barrett. Uh, Mamba24 asks, what contender team is most likely to undergo massive change in the offseason if they don't meet expectations in the playoffs? What do you think, Howard? Is there a team that jumps to mind when you're asked that question? Uh, I'll be curious what your thought is on this, Chris, because we have not discussed this before we started taping. Normally, there's an obvious one or two. I'm not sure there is one. Partially because we're in a really weird-ass season, <laughs> and I don't know if if you're going to hold anybody accountable for for the results in such a strange environment. But also, like a lot of these teams that are contenders are locked into their core. Like if the Lakers fall short, it's still going to be LeBron and AD. Like I mean, what the the, the most dramatic thing that'll happen there would be to change out some spare parts around them, right? Um, the Nets just put their big three together. I don't think a Nets flameout means that they're going to trade Kyrie. Um, the Bucks just went all in, as we've discussed on this pod, with Giannis, Drew, and Chris Middleton. You're, so, like, you're, the, you're missing like there's no... You're, you're missing one. You're missing one. So the Sixers... That's not it. No, it's, so the Sixers and the Clippers are the two interesting ones, right? There it is. You, um, take, you take the Sixers, the, then. I got the Clippers. You, see, the way you... The way you... The way you build drama, Chris, is you go through all of the other things so that you lead up, and then you say, but... You know, it's like at 60 minutes, they get like 10 minutes into a segment and you think this guy's the greatest guy in the world. And then you find out, you know, he's actually like, you know, uh, killed 10 people and buried them in his backyard. You got to wait for the twist. But but this is the thing. So Kawhi Leonard is a free agent, which is, I think, what you're alluding to. Kawhi Leonard is a free agent and he decided, unlike Paul George, not to extend. All right. So he's kind of in play, but he made, he went to all this effort just to get back to Southern California. Is Kawhi Leonard really going to bail on the Clippers after two years? Like, I'm really skeptical that that's going to happen. I don't think anybody around the league thinks it's going to happen. And then the Sixers are the other pseudo obvious one because they've they've considered trading uh, Ben Simmons before um, for James Harden. And it's, and it's a perennial discussion of should they find another path and, and get a different tag team partner. And if Bradley Beal becomes available, do you do the Ben Simmons for Bradley Beal swap that I've always uh, wanted to see? Uh, maybe, but I, I'm not convinced that either the Clippers or Sixers have a major shakeup. Um, I don't think the Lakers, Nets, Bucks, Nuggets, or Jazz are having a major shakeup either, unless there's something else I'm missing, or unless you th you're convinced that Kawhi Leonard is going to sign with the Grizzlies in August. I'm not convinced that Kawhi Leonard is going to walk, but I'm not here for the arguments that Kawhi is definitely going to re-sign, that he is a Clipper 
for the foreseeable future. I just, if you get beat in the first round, the door is open for Kawhi Leonard to walk away. And there's a team down there in South Florida that would love to get their hands on Kawhi Leonard. And true, you can sit there and say like, well, they don't have cap space. Miami creates cap space. Like Miami yeah. knows what they're doing when it comes to creating cap flexibility. If the Clippers get beat in the first round, whatever the amount of months that are between the end of the first round and the start of free agency, I would be terrified if I was the Los Angeles Clippers. I would also be nervous if I was the front office of the Clippers. Like, can that front office survive an early playoff exit? And I'll give you something that gets whispered in my ear a lot around the league. Uh, Clippers get beat early. Not a lot of flexibility to make a lot of moves. What could they do? Well, they could bring in a new top basketball executive. Now, what top basketball executive is available this summer and has a pre-existing relationship with Kawhi Leonard? Like, which one (laughs) is out there? Oh, yeah, it's Masai Ujiri, the current president of basketball operations with the Raptors, who is given no indication that he's staying in Toronto. His last media availability... He effectively punted on the question and ended it by saying the Raptors are going to be just fine. That may be true. Bobby Webster is an excellent young executive who I think would pick up where Masai left off. But if Masai becomes a free agent and the Clippers get beat in the first round, you got Southern California and Steve Ballmer's deep pockets. You think that's not a possibility, Howard? I get it. I hear that a lot from people in the NBA. This is wild. Over the space of like three minutes, I saw you gradually morph into that dude in the meme from Twitter who's got like the bulletin board behind him with all the push pins and the rubber bands and everything. He's got his hands out. Like, <laughs> Wow. You just got Masai and Kawhi and like Uncle Dennis. And I don't know how many other people uh, drawn into this conspiracy um, in L.A. So so Masai, Masai goes there and that means Kawhi stays? Maybe. Like, okay. I mean, I don't think there's a... There's a nastiness that exists between those two. Kawhi just chose no. to go back to Southern yeah. Cal. Like, that's what he did. No, I, think I agree. fine. I agree. Um, listen, if, we're, if we were going to do one of those, you know, which, which scenario are you betting on? I think it's, I think of the two of them, Kawhi seems more likely to stay than Masai in their current situations for exactly what you said. Like, Masai has given no indication that he plans to return, and maybe he will, but he, he's, he's been almost suspiciously ambiguous about it. Yep. And... I don't know what that means. If there's something else out there waiting for him, maybe not even in basketball. Maybe it's something else. Um, you know, they, he's, he's done a lot of humanitarian work. There's been, you know, speculation that he might go further into that area or in, maybe in the political arena in some regard. Um, no, no, no. He's going to run a bat. Like, he'll run a basketball team. Like, we did this with Daryl Morey, too. Like, Daryl's going to go, you know, spend more time with his family than, you know— Three and a half minutes later, he's the top executive with the Sixers. <laughs> that was when a you, little bit different. That was a little bit different. It was a little but yeah. bit different, but I, I think when when basketball is in your DNA and you are an executive, the level of Masai Ujiri, you do what you do best. Like maybe he yeah. doesn't jump to a new team as quickly as Daryl did, but he'll be back running a team. And I just I and, gotta believe the opportunity to to potentially run the Clippers would be very appealing to Masai Ujiri. Yeah, and I'll and I'll say this too. Um, because I have great, great regard for the Clipper front office. they got a lot of really smart people there, and let's not forget that team um, needed a lot of work, and that front office, I think, brilliantly put together the team that got them back, you know, post-Lob City teardown, got them respectable, they offloaded the Blake Griffin deal, they did all these things that made it attractive enough for Paul George and Kawhi Leonard to want to be there. Um, but this is a ruthless business. It's a, it's a, it's a cold-hearted world. And if Masai Ujiri is available and you're Steve Ballmer, if you are any owner in this league, and I'll, like, listen, there's like maybe five, six, seven GMs who, who if I had them, I'd say, no, 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 I'm still keeping that guy. But if I were a billionaire and as cold-hearted as most of the billionaires who are owners in this league are, I would throw my guy overboard in a heartbeat to get Masai Ujiri if he's truly available this summer. And so that's no disrespect to the Clipper front office or any others, but Masai's that good. And so, I, I, yeah, I, and, and to your point and back to the, to the, uh, the question from Twitter. Yeah. Like if, if the Clippers flame out early, maybe it's Kawhi leaving, or maybe it's, it's the front office getting, uh, shaken up. I mean, I, I like, those are both possibilities. I just look at the landscape right now and see like a lot of guys, you're like, you're not firing Ty Lue. He just got there. Right. Um, 
you know, if the Lakers flame out, you're not firing Frank Vogel. Budenholzer is the other one with a lot of speculation, of course. If we talk about flame outs and consequences, the roster is going to stay intact, but you can make a coaching change. So, there, you know, chances are something will happen. Something always does. Yeah, be interesting. Uh, yeah, look, Clippers can make this a moot point by doing what they're supposed to do and succeed in the playoffs. They add Rondo. They've got two stars. They should be a conference finalist this year. But if they're not, they are the team I am watching the closest. Let's do one more here, Howard. Uh, Brandon, he asked, what do the Bulls do with Kobe White and Lowry Marketing? Is there any value for either in this league? Just for clarification, Kobe White's under contract for next year. Lowry Marketing is a restricted free agent, so not the same type of flexibility uh, with marketing when it comes to making a deal. But uh, White and Marketing, what do you think? So on marketing, he's a he's a restricted free agent if they give him his qualifying offer, which is nine million, which I think is is likely, right? Um, you make him restricted. You almost have to you, there. Yeah, you have to give yeah. him that that QO. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't let a, a, a pick that high just walk away. Um, he's he has had his ups and downs, but he's still a valuable player. He's still young, and so they're gonna they're gonna make him his qualifying offer. He'll be restricted, and then another team can sign him to an offer sheet, which the Bulls can then match or the Bulls can just preemptively come to, to terms with him. I, I got to believe, Chris, that they're going to either re-sign him if they can find the, the right agreement with, with him and his representation, or before he signs an offer sheet with somebody else, maybe you work out a sign and trade. And maybe you can work out a sign and trade to get a point guard because to the second part of the question, Kobe White, I just don't think is is your 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 full-time point guard there. Yes, he can handle the ball. Yes, he could play the position some. He's not your classic playmaker, um, great shooter, but, and he's under contract for another couple of years, but they need an upgrade at that position. They've been tied to Lonzo ball. Um, I, I haven't, I haven't scoured the free agent market for this summer. The bulls, I don't think the bulls like have to do a lot to get cap room actually. Like they'd have to let Markin and walk. Um, I think they have to like renounce rights to a couple guys or, or, or trade a couple guys. Like they're not, they can't get significant cap room without losing significant players. So you know, maybe maybe that's their path. Maybe it's marketing in a, in a sign and trade to bring back a point guard. But that, you know, that's speculating off the top of my head. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, they they were discussing some combination of marketing for Lonzo before the trade deadline. That still makes some sense to me. Like, if if you bring both guys back in in sign and trade situations, that's that that makes some sense to me. I mean, marketing you know, theoretically, could be the kind of shooter that creates more space for Zion if you play Zion more. At the five, I guess marketing could play some five. And, you know, Lonzo gives Chicago the established, if you want to call him that, point guard that they've been looking for for years. So if I'm both teams, maybe I revisit that at the end of the season. Because I'm with you. I think Kobe White's a good player, but I don't think he's... If you're trying to win something, I don't think he's your starter. I don't. I think he can play. I don't think he's your starter. Yeah, no, he's 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 that good combo guard that you bring off the bench and, you know, sixth man type, you know, throwing a bunch of threes, score some, play make some, but like not your night in, night out guy to, to run the offense. No, I agree. All right, Howard, looking forward to the new episode on Friday. Should be good. New guests taking over the feed, running things your way. Anything else you want to say about that? <laughs> Sorry, you were fading in and out there. You got to like uh, tighten the wires on your microphone there. Uh, new episode, Friday, tag team. Scoop, there it is. Sprinkles! Love it. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one -on -one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.